Welcome back to Postseason Baseball here on the Diamond Duo Podcast. My name is Tom Bauer. He is Tony Puglisi, and we are the Diamond Duo, bringing you all around Major League Baseball to give you a taste of what occurred in the past week, what will occur this week, plenty more coming your way in the next hour or so. Brought to you by two people that strongly endorse the phrase, cheaters never prosper, except when those two teams end up meeting in the ALCS this year. I'm not throwing accusations at the teams that they are cheating this year. Ryan Tapera threw accusations at uh, one of these two teams, but um, yeah, I'm j- I just like to throw shade early on the recording. At any rate, welcome back to the Diamond Duo <laughs> podcast. And Red Sox and Astro fans, if you're listening, you probably just turned it off. But anyway, again, my name's Tom Bauer. He's Tony Puglisi with a Diamond Duo. We've got some stuff to talk about uh, this week, and we've got plenty of it. Tony, how are you doing? Yes, you're right, Tom. We have plenty to talk about. I'm doing just fine. Thank you for asking. Um, Trying my best to drink away my sorrows. That is this ALCS. Uh, I'm not an alcoholic out there, ladies and gentlemen. Don't don't try that at home. <laughs> but no, we got a lot of postseason baseball to talk about. We got a fun little segment planned for y'all later on in the broadcast. Uh, and it has to do with, let's call it a running theme that's been sort of omnipresent in this World Series. We'll deep dive that more as we get further into the show. But Tom, let's say we kick things right off. Let's get right into some major headlines, some very, albeit brief, major headlines and then we'll go into the Divisional Series debrief. Why don't you kick us off, Tom? Yes, we will. Um, real quickly, again, as we say at the beginning of every episode, let's do a disclaimer, because if Tony said it in the past, like, 30 seconds, I didn't hear it, because Discord lagged again. <laughs> so we are recording on Sunday, October 10th. It is 2.46 p.m. right now. Um, so, again, if anything happens after it, then that's why um, we didn't cover it. We're available to stream on Spotify, of course, and we are on Instagram at the Diamond Duo Podcast on Twitter at Diamond Duo Pod. Anyway, let's get into it because we've got some coaching shakeups in the MLB coming our way. Three of the shakeups I think we all saw coming, especially if you know us being Yankee fans. And we'll start there uh, because the uh, other news is a lot more shocking, and I want to save it for dramatic um, effect. Anyway, Marcus Thames, Phil Nevin, and the assistant hitting coach. Yeah, that's what I wrote down because I didn't remember his or her name. Uh, will not return to the New York Yankees after this disappointing season. And Tony, I really think this was the moves they needed to make. I outlined a plan for the Yankees either last week or the week before. I don't know. I'm really blanking on a lot of things today, including stuff about the ALDS. So that'll be a fun discussion. (laughs) But the offense just hasn't been there all season. And Phil Nevin obviously has other reasons why he's out as third base coach. Absolutely, Tom. Tim's definitely had his time in the sun as the Yankees coach. The Yankees were one of the teams that greatly prospered from the juiced ball year of 2019, and Tim's uh, since then has seemingly taken no alternative to, you know, go around that, to sort of adapt to that now that the juiced ball is no longer a thing. You look at hitters like Glaber Torres, who should be better. Um, You look at guys who have come up and just not really done it for the Yankees. The only guys who have been consistent past few years have been Judge and Stanton when healthy. Even DJ LeMahieu saw a lot of regression this year, so he definitely needed to go, especially, I can go on for hours about how I think he ruined Glaber Torres' swing, but for time's sake, let's move on to Phil Nevin. Tom, I distinctly remember that tirade you went on last week about him sending Aaron Judge in that wild card game. 
And oh, I, I remember it too. I had to edit a, a lot of stuff out of that. <laughs> the fact of the matter, I actually didn't know what you said last week that the Yankees ran themselves into more outs going home than any other team. It, if that's the case, you need to fire Phil Nevin. Like, I will always respect him to some degree for that rant he gave Angel Hernandez during the 2020 season. I don't know if you remember that. I think they were playing the Phillies and Nevin. Oh, I remember <laughs> it a lot. Yes, I do. Nevin was pointing at him yelling like, like bullshit, Angel, bullshit. We all know you don't want to be here. So I'll give him props for that, but literally nothing else. He needed to go. Tim's and his assistant. I don't know his name either. Don't worry. Um, they all needed to go. Um, I think this might be a domino effect, Tom. Like, Aaron Boone might be next. Brian Cashman might be next. I think if there are any more big moves, they may happen outside of the postseason. I don't know what uh, your take is on this, but I feel like if the Yankees are making moves like this, well, first of all, they're making moves. That's surprising. But the fact that they're doing it this early... I think is a good sign. Well, I think they were getting rid of their hot garbage that they needed to get out of the way first. They're going to use these three individuals where the hot garbage that need to go. They are going to be the scapegoats for all this. But you say Cashman and Boone are going to be the next to go. I'm not so sure about that because apparently the Yankees are looking for Aaron Boone's ying to his yang or however you say that phrase. I don't know. I can't say phrases at all because you already know how much of a troubled pass I have on this podcast of trying to say phrases. But at any rate, I feel like that's stupid. If you're looking for somebody who has to kind of play good cop, bad cop, and I think Eric Hubbs on a, of Barstool Sports pointed this out very well, isn't that a sign that you need a new manager? If you need to do a good cop, bad cop thing, it just doesn't work out. Obviously, Boone is well-liked by the organization. Again, a great guy, and Brian Cashman can kind of use him as a puppet. I think Brian Cashman is more or less managing, quote-unquote, this team right now because he's assembling it and pretty much telling Boone what to do for the majority of the situation, him in the analytics department, and uh, Boone is just kind of being fed this information, and then he kind of has to sort out the bullpen uh, for himself. That's how I feel the Yankees are kind of managing ball games right now. Um, so I find it a little bit peculiar. Of course, I'm happy that they're gone. So anyway, Tony, do you have anything you would like to add before we get onto news number two about another manager or about, yeah, about another manager? Not in particular. Um, I had no idea that was their plan going forward with Aaron Boone. I'm not going to lie. I thought he was still on the hot seat, but I I'm still kind of trying to process that because I know I hate that mindset already just off the cuff. I know I hate it. I just need to figure out how much I hate that. Because if you need basically a separate piece uh, to make a manager work and make it a managerial tandem, I I don't know how that's going to work. I Granted, no coach, no manager in MLB works alone. A manager is only as good as, you know, the hitting, pitching staff, bullpen coaches around him. But having a 1A, 1B type manager just doesn't seem right to me. I don't know. Granted, I do like the moves the Yankees made. We'll see if they have any more uh, any more moves up their sleeves in the coming weeks, the coming months, and obviously the coming offseason. So, you know, your number one source for uh, tirades about the Yankees bullshit is the Diamond Duo podcast, so stay tuned. But for the time being, Tom, like you said, we have one more managerial shift to cover. And I say shift, I should say shilt. That was terrible, but screw it, keep it in. <laughs> As... Cardinals manager is, uh, should I say, former Cardinals manager Mike Schilt will no longer be the bench boss of the St. Louis Cardinals. The organization cited philosophical differences and an overall differing, like almost, uh, 
how would you say the, the, uh, differing opinions uh I, I know there's a phrase for this cut this out no I, I might leave it in just for the hell of it I'll, 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 screw it you know maybe i'm bad as you at looking at uh looking for phrases in my head today i'll just say it straight up they didn't see eye to eye on where the team should go and before that miraculous 17 game winning streak the cardinals were very very mediocre they had a sub 500 first half and i guess cardinals president of baseball operations john mosliak apologies if i mispronounced that cardinals fans i very likely did um he said we uh where we are at this point in time we're not making the decision on a reaction to the season this is a decision that as we start to look forward we do what we want to do uh what do we want it to most look like and how do we want that to be run see i can read so president of baseball operations for the cardinals obviously just had you know, differing view of what he wanted the Cardinals to be compared to Mike Schilt. It's strictly going to be a one-swap thing. He actually mentioned later on in this article that I'm reading from the MLB app that it's very unlikely the Cardinals see a bunch of other shakeups in the managerial brass. Schilt had been with the organization for 18 years. He moved his way up from minor league player development, as did uh, most of the other Cardinals uh, coaches and assistants, which very good for them. They keep all their talent homegrown, including the coaches, including the best name for a first base coach I've never heard of, Stubby Clap. I just wanted to be able to, <laughs> I just wanted to say that on the air because I love that name, but. I love that name. <laughs> oh, yeah, but so, Tony, I actually found something on Twitter from the world famous Tom Smith 717 on Twitter. And I yeah, the world famous Tom Smith. This was in a comment um, to the Mike Schild thread, I think, on the Jeff Bisson tweet. But he says, and I quote um, his uh, his tweet. And again, I don't know how much validity it has because I didn't listen to this. But according to Michael K, Mike Schild was fired by the Cardinals because the front office wanted to fire some of the coaches on his staff and replace them with more analytical guys. Shield stood up for his guys and ultimately was shown the door with them. So wow. that was potentially one of the big reasons. Now, I would have to say I agree with you. They were an underperforming team playing 500 baseball. When you have guys like Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado on the team, you probably should be playing above 500 baseball. And that 17-game winning streak, of course, that saved the season. It should have saved Mike Schild's job because I think he could have been on the hot seat debatably even if they didn't go on that 17-game winning streak and maybe they finished like 81 and 81. But, I mean, if this is true from the, again, world-famous Tom Smith 717, then I think this just goes to show you that some of the older guys in baseball are just going to be shown the door because they want to go with what analytics are going to say. And we can debate analytics till the end of the world, Tony, because everybody has their opinion on them. I'm not huge. I don't. I mean, I get the concept of analytics. They help you win ball games, but at the same time, it's over-abused in the MLB. You gotta have... It's almost like people aren't factoring in actual baseball strategy and sheer luck into these analytics, I feel like, sometimes. I feel like that's where it's really going down, and that's why the MLB is struggling to move their game forward because all you have when you go up to the plate is three outcomes. Most of the time, it makes the game boring, and ultimately, it'll even make the games longer too. But I think that's more of a replay thing than anything else. But yeah, I, I just found that shocking. Again, I don't know if it's true, but if it is, oh boy, then uh, yeah, that's just showing where baseball's going. Definitely a big contradiction to the article that MLB themselves published. Obviously, if that is the case, I don't think they paint that in bright, vivid colors for the whole world to see, like why he was fired, why he was shown the door. If that actually is true, like Tom said, we don't know if that's true, even though the world-famous Tom Smith of Twitter said it, I mean, by God, in an era of fake news, all we could trust is Tom Smith, so... <laughs> yeah, exactly. He said that was from Michael K, though. I trust Michael K. Um, <laughs> again, maybe Yankees bias, 
But Yanko K, Michael K, has a lot of Yanko brass, K. and he's got a lot of clout. <laughs> Jesus, I can't. Speak. I'm sorry, Yanko K, that got me. My- <laughs> Michael K has a lot of respect inside the game of baseball, and he could get the news that he wants um, at the snap of his finger. I, so, right. I mean, I, I, if he actually said that, I would trust it, but who knows. At any rate, so, yeah, that's a managerial shakeups. Um, we don't really know probably the Cardinals candidates yet. We don't know a list of, like, finalists, unlike the Padres' managerial search right now, but I think we explained that in a pre- previous episode. If not, I know Ron Washington's one of them, Buck Showalter. They're going for a guy who wants some experience. They don't want a newbie. Um, and I assume the Cardinals might be going the opposite direction if they want to go analytical. They might be wanting somebody maybe like a Skip Schumacher, who I think is the Padres' bench coach or something like that, also played for the Cardinals, was well-respected on the team at the time. But at any rate, Tony, we could talk about managers all day, and I feel like I'm saying that phrase a lot. We're talking about phrases all day. <laughs> Jesus. At any rate... We've got to move on to the division series because all four division series wrapped up in the past week and we've got a couple to go through and we'll kind of just kind of briefly recap our thoughts on these because we do have to move on to the championship series. The three games have been played there so far and we've also got a special segment going on later in the show. So let's kick it off with our two favorite teams in the Boston Red Sox and the Tampa Bay Rays or the Montreal Bay Devil Expos, as they will be known in the near future. I, we, so, Tony, we got to put that on a T-shirt <laughs> at this point. How many times we say that that's got to be on a T-shirt? Well, actually, I got to get my Photoshop. <laughs> actually, it's going to be on their jerseys sometime. I got to get my Photoshop. Game. <laughs> Damn it, Discord. Yeah, I got to get my Photoshop game. <laughs> <laughs> the lag. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think we're going to just leave this in as is just to prove how bad of a lag this is. We're trying to like talk to each other and this shit happens. But oh, but I got to work on my Photoshop game and combine a jersey and then I'll start selling that and hopefully not get sued by the MLB. At this point, let's just FaceTime each other for these calls. I feel like it might have less lag than Discord <laughs> after that debacle. But that aside, that's something we can discuss when we're not recording. Tom, let's jump right into this ALDS featuring the Red Sox and the Montreal Devil Bay Expo Rays, whatever you called them. <laughs> Mind you, we talked about all the all of the beginnings of these series uh, in last week's episode, so we're not going to recap the whole series. We're just going to talk about how they ended, what we think, point and laugh at the loser, because trust me, we can point and laugh at every single loser here. And let's start <laughs> with the Rays, Tom, because holy sh**, you have one of the best pitching staffs, not just in the American League, but in all of Major League Baseball. And not only does seemingly every pitcher on your staff seem to prolapse at just the wrong possible time, but you continue, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but Kevin Cash seemed to be playing coy with his pitchers, like, oh, no big deal, I'll just start three, I'll just start rookies three straight days, it's just the Red Sox, they're just a wildcard team, we're the 100 win <laughs> Tampa Bay Devil Expos, we could beat any team. Like, the Rays in this season, in this season, in this series, seem like they needed to get knocked down a few pegs, which granted, there's one thing that I think cost them the momentum in the series, I'll talk about that in a sec, but I want to get your take first. Well, I think we were about to say the exact same thing about the, where the momentum swayed, in the series, but you're absolutely right. You can't be starting three. Like, it worked with Randy f***ing the Rosarena last year when dude hit 10 home runs and drove in, like, 19 RBIs in the entirety of the postseason. But pitching is a whole different thing from batting. With, uh, I, I mean, I guess not. I was going to make a case about, like, scouting reports and you can see different levels. But I feel like it's easier to adjust to the big leagues as a batter than it is as a pitcher. Granted, these guys have already had some time to shine in the big leagues. But that being said, you want to throw 
the guys who have the most experience in the postseason, at least to start you off. And they did end up winning game one, which is good for them, but then they just continued to drop the ball down there. Yeah, they were too reliant on the rookies, and ultimately, it showed, and the bullpen choked. So obviously, it also goes to show that no matter how strong you might be on paper, it's not always going to be able to hold up. But now let's move on to this momentum thing. And I think you were, again, we were going to go in the right direction. Oh, yeah. So here we go. The 13 inning speciality. I think this happened literally the night that we recorded last week's episode. (laughs) Again, it was a 6-4 win for the Red Sox. But um, ground rule trouble, as the CBS uh, Sports app puts it, um, where Kevin Kiermaier's line drive, it sailed over the over. Hunter Renfro bounced off the wall and then hit Renfro's thigh, bounced over the wall, and it was ruled a ground rule double, thus preventing Yandy Diaz, I believe who it was at first base, from scoring, even though he already hit third base and was a couple steps heading toward home because of how the ground rule double ground ground rule double rule works. Say that five times fast. Um, it it just didn't go the Rays' favor. I want to know your thoughts on this whole ground rule double situation because i i don't i don't feel like renfro obviously he didn't do that intentionally it just worked in the red sox favor which i think is a little bit of bull exactly like there's a couple other questionable calls we're gonna talk about later trust me there's there's literally one in each series that we're gonna talk about but of all of the weird questionable or straight up egregious calls this is the one I feel least strongly about because, Tom, like you said, Renfro didn't intentionally, he didn't pick up the ball and put it in the bullpen. Kiermeyer obviously didn't hit it straight out, and then for some reason it came back. Like, the ruling, like, I try to picture it this way. When there's a weird call on the field, I put myself in the umpire's shoes and I'd say, okay, what would I call this? And if I'm honest, my back's against the wall in a postseason game that could decide the momentum of the series— I'd play it safe and just call it a ground rule double because there was no intent behind Renfro. Obviously, he couldn't control the ball bouncing off of his thigh. No one has reflexes that fast. Certainly unfortunate for the Tampa Bay Rays, and it obviously led, well, it didn't directly lead, but in a way it led to uh, Christian Vasquez's walk-off two-run home run the next half inning off of yet another 21-year-old on the mound in Luis Patino. Good job, Rays. But no. Of the four plays we're going to talk about, this is the one I feel the least strongly about. It could have been worse, just a, just a, bleh, just a bout of bad luck for the Rays. Exactly, and that's all it really comes down to. Even Kevin Cash wasn't mad about it after game. He just said, that's the rule. I mean, I, I'm i not doing a direct quote, but I did just read his quote on, this, again, the CBS Sports app. Um, it, it's just the rule, and he has to live with it, and we all have to live with it. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be changing the ground rule double rule because one bullshit thing happened to the Rays of all teams if you attracted a crowd and were more marketable maybe that could be a discussion but obviously not just throwing shade at the Rays because fuck you Tampa Bay <laughs> um, but anyway but you still had another chance even though that would have swayed the momentum in your favor you would have been up 2-1 in the series now you're down 2-1 you're still in Fenway and then you gotta go to the next game where um we're gonna recap very quickly it was a 6-5 win for Boston Boston had a 5-0 lead going into the 5th inning, and that's when Tampa Bay started to charge back. It was 5-5 into the 8th, and then the ninth inning happened, and I believe the first play that happened of that inning, I believe this was the inning Wander Franco made an error at first base, or was that or was that game 4? I or this is this is game four. Is that game three? No, I, I think you're right. I think this was the game where Franco. I forget exactly what he did, but an error was charged to him, and it allowed the ball to get rolling. Yeah, it it was a backhand play, and then he tried to like throw it um 
against his body, and he just airmailed it, and then the Red Sox obviously got uh, base. And then I believe later in the inning, um, there was a throw to G-Man Choi, and he just dropped it, and then that screwed the Rays even more. And then from there on, um, guess who hit the uh, walk-off home? Or not the walk, uh, yeah, the walk-off sack fly, Kike Hernandez! <laughs> the yeah. best player used to that name. in the MLB postseason right Get now. Get used to that name, folks. It ain't going to be the last time you hear it. I was just going to say, we should probably be talking about Kike Hernandez a lot more in the postseason more than we are about Tampa Bay, but um, I mean, if anything, I guess this is really the last time we're going to be able to talk about Tampa exactly. Bay. Exactly. So. I want to focus on Tampa Bay now because I want to point and laugh at them. Like, you, you won 100 games for the first <laughs> time in your season, probably one of your last seasons solely in Tampa Bay, and you go out like that. And trust me, once we get to the ALCS, we are going we are 100% going to talk about Kihei uh, Kike Hernandez, but with, <laughs> <laughs> Hernandez, but with this Game 5, valiant comeback put together by Tampa, but strangely enough, someone who isn't 21 was on the mound for the ninth, and JP Fireisen could not uh, hold the tie, and Boston wins. So, haha, Tampa. Good season, good regular season, but maybe he'll be back next year. I don't know. ALEs look stacked. Tom, do you have anything else to add? No, I was just gonna say the rookie didn't blow it, so they can't blame it on the, we can't blame it on the rookie, I guess, for uh, game four. But whatever, it is what it is. Tampa Bay. Now you know how the Yankees feel every time we bow out of the postseason early in the past couple of years. Anyway, let's move on because this series is probably laughable to talk about. And this was the Chicago White Sox and the Houston Astros. We wrote down on the rundown, or more or less, Tony wrote down on the rundown. Ha ha! All AL Central teams are the same. Um, and the Sox just aren't as good, couldn't keep a lead, and couldn't contain Astros hitters. And you're absolutely right about that. All these AL Central teams are the same. They're not as good as you think they would be. But it's interesting what happened in Game 3, or rather after Game 3. So I alluded to this earlier, but um, White Sox uh, reliever Ryan Tapera, Mr. MVP vote last uh, season, uh, he implied that the Houston Astros may have stolen signs versus the White Sox, and he says, quote, they've obviously had a reputation of doing some sketchy stuff. And Ryan, listen, buddy, Mr. Tapera, sir, we all love digging into the Houston Astros, but when you're playing against them and the series is not in your favor, and when they notoriously cheated at home and you're on the road at your home ballpark, you should not be talking shit during the middle of the series and all that served to do let's be fair was fuel the astros even martin maldonado their backstop said hey we all we never shy away from motivation exactly and this is a notorious astros team that feeds off the motivation for the past couple of years again i hate talking about the astros in a positive manner i'm gonna have to do it when we talk about the alcs or rather i could just talk angrily the whole time like I kind of am right now. But oh boy, did that backfire on Ryan Tapera because the Astros broke into the double digits and runs um, and runs scored to demolish the White Sox 10 to 1 to finish them off. <laughs> oh boy, that that was hilarious. I got to check in on our White Sox friend Max Sacco and see how he's recovering from this uh, series. We should have called him. We should have called him get his thoughts on the whole matter because, let's be fair here, all the White Sox did in this series, the only thing they managed to accomplish was realize that they're just the Indians in disguise. Like, like have you ever seen Scooby-Doo? You ever watch an episode of Scooby-Doo where at the very end they unmask the bad guy and it's like a good guy that they met in the beginning of the episode? That's what this series yeah. felt like. All right, let's see who the White Sox really are. They just take off the hood and it's Chief Wahoo. It's like, oh, Cleveland... <laughs> 
It's they, I, I think you posted that on Twitter too. I, I didn't. I can't take credit for that. That was urinating tree. Oh, that was somebody else. I okay. I saw you retweeted it or liked it or something, and I'm like, oh, this has Tony written all over I, it. I can't take credit uh, for that. That was uh, hilarious. But no, the White Sox. Aside from one game, the White Sox just didn't show up. Either their hitting prolapsed, their pitching couldn't keep up, or it was both. And the only game they did win, they had, how you say, a little bit of help. If you didn't have anything else to say, I'll just deep dive that. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we have our second questionable call in this divisional series. So, just setting the stage briefly, the White Sox are already up. I believe the score is... Oh, actually, no. This is a tie game. Mother of God. It's 6-6 six to six in the bottom of the fourth inning. Zach Granke comes out of the bullpen to face Yasmani Grandal with the bases loaded, I believe. Yeah, bases loaded. Yasmani Grandal hits a slow dribbler back to the pitcher. Grandal throws to first. The, they get the out at first, and the first baseman, Yuli Gurriel, throws it back at home to get the out breaking for the plate. Grandal kind of veers out of the baseline, it ricochets, hits Grandal in the arm. Grandal, by the way, is a dead runner by now. That ball hitting him, it shouldn't hit him. He should not be in the baseline. It goes offline. Maldonado can't get a glove on it. Not only does one run score, I believe two of them actually score. No, actually. Luis Roberts scored, but Jose Abreu did manage to get to third on the play. So we have yet another questionable call because nothing about this play was done. It was ruled that he didn't stray too far out of the base pads, which... I don't know. I don't know. He's already a dead runner. He shouldn't be there. And you actually see there was a... I, I almost wish there was a vi there was a visual medium I could show you. There was an overhead graph somebody made of the trajectory Grandal took. He clearly ran out of the base pads. He was in the grass towards the mound. He clearly stuck his elbow out a little bit to defect... To deflect... Bleh. To deflect the... Th the throw, if I get through the sentence. So, we're slowly but surely going up in egregiousness of these plays. I think this one makes much less sense than the Red Sox one, Tom. Yeah, it does. To be honest, I didn't see this live. Um, but based on you describing it, yeah, Yasmani sounded like, again, he was the dead runner. He can't interfere with the ball. It kind of reminds me of another situation that um, we will be talking about when we get to our special segment. Uh, I believe, Tony, you had that seated as number eight. On that, oh yeah, spoiler alert. We might be doing a bracket. Um, but, <laughs> Surprise! Um, I guess I guess now you know. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Oops. I won't tell you what it's about yet, but um, it reminds me of that play. <laughs> it was seven, by the way. But... I'm gonna stop. Uh, what? Well, well f it, whatever. I'm, I'm gonna stop talking because I'm gonna talk about the bracket if I continue talking about that play. Also, uh, later in game. Four, I believe it was Tony Larusa. He threw a temper tantrum after Jose Abreu got hit by a pitch. Um, of course he did. I don't know too much details about that, but I'm gonna go back to your Scooby Doo reference. I'm gonna imagine he was like waggling his fist and saying, "You're not gonna get away with this, you meddling kids!" Like the Houston Astros, he waddles his ass out of the dugout with a cane in his like, hand. Like when he ran and out of the field when Karachak hit Abreu, the way he sprinted out there. Yeah, and then. Didn't he, like, push him or he something like that? He pushed Roberto Perez out of the way, like, no, 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 you get away. You <laughs> call for an inside fastball. How dare you? <laughs> We're getting off topic, but... <laughs> oh, oh, Tony LaRusso, you never cease to amaze please, us. Please never retire again. Yeah, yeah, please don't do that. Don't don't drink and drive either. Uh, don't, don't do that again, please. Um, and at <laughs> any rate, uh, let, let's move on because we have nothing else to talk about this to you, Stroke. The Astros, the Astros <laughs> romped uh, Chicago in the series. Yeah, oh, not much boy. else to say. White Sox suck. Lol. 
Max will give you a call. Uh, half of consolation and half of us just laughing at you. Let's move on to the National League Division Series, Tom. Yeah, let's talk about um, a series that didn't feature a lot of hitting on the part of my sweetheart team that is now out of the postseason, and my World Series prediction is now ruined. Um, this is the Atlanta and Milwaukee series, of course, we're talking about. And the Braves, or not the Braves, the Brewers we already know had a troubled time hitting in the regular season, but we thought maybe the pitching could carry them in the postseason. And I would argue that it kind of did, because I don't think they gave up a lot of runs, to be fair, to Atlanta throughout um, these ball games. I'm going to pull up the final scores real quick. I actually have them up right now, if you'd just like me to rattle them off. Yeah, sure, why not? I was going to say, so... The Braves, pardon me, the Brewers pitching actually held the Braves to five runs or fewer in every single game. And first game, the Braves scored one, second and third was three, and the final one was five. Frankly, I don't think the last one should have been that many runs, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Uh, no, pretty much everyone on the Brewers staff pitched at least okay. I really, really don't know why Council pulled Freddie Peralta so early in game three. Uh, Adrian Hauser went on to give up most of those runs. He actually took the loss for that game. I don't blame Council or the pitching for losing game three because guess how many runs the Brewers scored in that game. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't see, but Tom and I both put up a zero at the exact same time on discord the brewers scored a total of six runs throughout this series and four of them came in the last game they were shut out in games two and four pardon me two and three there was only one player on their team who had a batting average over 250 and it was willie adamas i don't even know how many games he played but that's pathetic the next highest up is lorenzo kane with a 231 who granted lorenzo kane made a great play in center field, I believe in game four, but nobody else hit above 230. It's ridiculous. Luis Urias sucked. Christian Yelich sucked. Guy Abisayel Garcia and Colton Wong sucked. You can't win a World Series on pitching alone. Like, pitching wins ships, but hitting allows you to get to that place in the first in the first place. You, there, It's not an excuse. You have to hit. Yeah, you, you really have to have that balancing act between hitting and, I was going to say not hitting, but I guess that wouldn't make any sense. You have to have a balance act between pitching and... I was going to say pitching and non-pitching again. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Um, you have to have a balancing act of pitching and hitting, and that's exactly what teams like the Red Sox did, what the Astros did. The Astros didn't do it as well, but the Red Sox did it pretty well. Or Actually, no, I think the Astros allowed less runs, but whatever. Those are two teams that do it really well. The Braves, they didn't even really have to try with this because they, they, they mowed down Milwaukee. I think you even wrote down that down in the rundown. The Braves really didn't have to try. They scored uh, four, seven... And they scored 12 runs over four games. That averages out to about three runs per game, which is accurate because they scored three runs per game in two of the games when they shut out the Brewers. But yeah, you also have to give credit to the pitching of the Braves staff. I think that's something you also put down, Tony. Um, names like Ian Anderson, Charlie Morton, Max Fried, those are the big three that they're throwing out there. A lot of people weren't giving them a lot of credit, I think, or do credit going into the postseason, even though everybody knows these are three guys that can really make an impact on any squad, but they kind of led the way for Milwaukee. They really did, or Atlanta, I know you mean. Or not Milwaukee, <laughs> Jesus. They were, they were the Milwaukee Braves at one point, so I am half right. <laughs> you were half right, but yeah, no, the starting rotation did great. Credit to the bullpen as well. Will Smith, I don't think, has allowed a run in the postseason yet. I'm going to double check that, make sure I'm not wrong, which is impressive. He's one of the more shaky closers in baseball. He'll close the game, but he'll allow like one run as he does it. Tyler Matzik, guys in the back like Luke Jackson, their bullpen's honestly been good. Their bullpen has honestly not been bad, and their starting rotation obviously has been bleh, obviously has been great too. And I'm right, by the way, Will Smith has not given up a run yet. So 
No, the Braves were easily the most complete team all throughout the series, and as you'll see in the championship series, they're off to a good start against the Dodgers, too. So, congratulations, Atlanta. You've earned yourself another ticket to a blown lead in the American League, pardon me, the National League Championship Series. Surprise us. How about you do something different for once? But speaking of doing something different for once, how about a, how about a series that actually seemed close on both sides, on on the part of both teams, and actually went to five games? Tom, let's talk about the Dodgers versus the Giants. Now, like, we just devote this segment to the last game. Like, <laughs> honestly, that's all I really want to do because it's so egregious. Everybody's been up in arms about Gabe Morales this, <laughs> Gabe Morales that. Everyone is saying that, but... <laughs> If you look at the series, though, what I was going to say was it wasn't really a back... I mean, as much as it was a back-and-forth series for getting 2-2 and then the Dodgers ultimately prevailing in Game 5, there weren't really any close games except for Game 3 and Game 5, um, which the Giants won Game 3 and then obviously the Dodgers won Game 5. Other than that, it was kind of one team dominating one time and then another team just kind of taking the back seat and being like okay i'm gonna pick up the pieces to this puzzle in the next game which i found really surprising between these two teams because i thought it would be a lot more competitive especially from an offensive standpoint i agree to an extent because i think i said in one of the previous episodes that both teams are so resilient they don't need like they need to worry about momentum obviously but momentum in a series like this can change like that and while that might not be true within each individual game, Tom, like you said, Giants win game one, Dodgers win game two, Giants win game three, Dodgers win game four, and the Dodgers actually finished it on game five. Momentum was literally a pendulum. It goes one way, it goes the other way, it goes one way, it goes the other way. I thought in that respect, it was a very good series. Could each individual game have been closer? Yes, but I want to highlight one guy for the Giants that in game three, or pardon me, not game three, in game five really allowed that to happen and this dude unfortunately his performance is probably getting lost in history because his team got knocked down in the divisional series but logan webb pitched his goddamn heart out in this series he started two games he started game one and game five uh game one was a shutout that's already a great start uh if i could pull up his splits from the postseason that would actually be fantastic but uh i'm not gonna be able to pull them up at time but i will say i pitched a shutout and uh did you find them i was just gonna i just had game five pulled up real quickly um in game five he went seven innings only gave up four hits only allowed one run walked one and he struck out seven so obviously he did well there i think he did better in game one though i think he struck out more and i think he almost went the full I think he went a little bit more. He struck out. They did in. Uh, I believe he struck out ten. We talked about game one in last week's episode, so that's why we're going to focus more on game five. But I did want to just highlight Logan Webb because he's probably outside of Atlanta, maybe even in Atlanta too, been the best starter in this whole postseason, and it's a shame he won't be playing for a title. But anyway, let's get to the meat and bones of why everybody's talking about this, and that is that Gabe Morales call on Wilmer Flores. Um, if you looked at it. From a person. Oh wait! First of all, before we get there, I want to give credit to Cody Bellinger because we have been ragging him <laughs> through the ringer throughout the entirety of this podcast. But in Game Five, he had that clutch hit that gave the Dodgers the winning run. So thanks, Cody Bellinger. Now, at least you showed up for your team. You can say in some capacity this season. But anyway, the Wilmer Flores check swing. What I was going to say is 
from a live perspective, and you can even listen, look back on live reactions from people, they thought he went. But of course, when you slow it down, you go to replay, which Gabe Morales did not have the chance to do. It was a completely different ball game. It was a different story. Yeah, yeah. So Wilmer Flores is at the plate. It's two outs. Uh, Max Scherzer's at the plate. I believe the tying run, yeah, the tying run was on base. Two strike count. Mad Max throws a slider. Flores barely moves the bat. Let's be real here. If you're listening to this podcast, you very likely saw the play. And you, even if you were a Dodgers fan, Nicolette, I'm looking at you. Hypothetically, I'm looking at you. You gotta know that's a bad call. Like, we didn't touch upon the blown call, potential blown call, in the Brewers Brave series just because it's not as impactful as this. Oh my god, Tom, this play actually cost San Francisco their season, and it's one of the worst called strike threes appealed I've ever seen in my life. Yes, I would agree. Here's the thing. It did impact the series because that instantly knocked the Giants out of their season. But you also got to look at the situation. It was an 0-2 count. I don't know if they had a runner on base or not. Obviously, they had two outs. Do you know if they had a runner on base? They did. I believe. I, I don't remember who it was, but he was on He was, was on first. I think it was on first yeah. base. Okay. Would Wilmer Flores have ideally been able to get out of that 0-2 count? Would he, he have been? A, I mean, it's a question that will be asked forever. Because Wilmer's been part of big moments in the postseason before, um, including his time with the New York Mets, and that I believe he was with them in the 2015 World Series, too. It, it's just sad because, again, it knocks the Giants out of the season, but I question whether or not he would have been able to get out of that situation with Mad Max Scherzer on the mound at that time. The one thing I'll say to that, this is probably the last thing I'll say about the series as a whole, when it comes to plays like that in baseball, I really don't tend to think of what ifs. Like, just flashback to one World Series ago in Game 5, you had Brett Phillips the guy who the Kansas City Royals, the very much sub-500 Kansas City Royals, gave up to the Rays for practically nothing. He pinch hit against Kenley just because of the lefty-righty platoon matchup. And again, Kenley Jansen, one of the best closers of the past decade. And what does he do? Who wins? Kenley, right? Because he's better. Well, no, Brett Phillips knocks the walk-off hit into center field, granted with some help from some vaudeville comedic stunts from the Dodgers. But... Brett Phillips won in that case, despite being vastly outclassed on paper. Yes, Wilmer was definitely outclassed on paper against a future Hall of Famer and Max Scherzer, but October baseball is where magical moments like that like flourish. That could have been a moment for the ages if that wasn't a strike three. Granted, the realistic solution would be to say, yeah, Flores never got a hit against Scherzer before. It was uh, two outs in the, their last out of the season. He probably wouldn't have gotten past it. But with the postseason, I've learned to never just assume, like, oh, 100% would have been out. No doubt about it, because who knows? Maybe he blasts the series-clinching home run into the left field seats, and my trivia question from last week already becomes outdated, and we have an all-time moment. So that's what I'll say about that. It's a shame it went down that way, and f*** you, Gabe Morales, for potentially costing us an all-time moment. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll agree with that argument that you, you never know what happens in the postseason. But uh, don't don't be sending death threats or whatever to Game Morales. He's human. Yeah, don't do that. He goes on with it. But at the same time, this is why umpires need to have accountability, especially on big game moments. Again, very quick moment in the situation. There have been more egregious calls, dot, dot, dot. But before I start listing them off, because I know so many now. <laughs> Um, in the postseason, <laughs> we're going to move on past the divisional series debrief, and we are going to go straight into our first trivia question before the championship series. We kind of give our analysis on the three games that happened so far there. Tony, 
What do you got for me? Because I already know the subject, and we kind of have a similar subject this week. So we have a similar subject in the fact that it's about something that happens in the postseason, but I think we're asking different questions, or at least I'd hope anyway that'd be embarrassing if we weren't. So in this past championship series, I believe it was Carlos Correa or Jose Altuve, one of them. I should have known this, but it is an Astros player who I don't really care about. One of them made history in moving up the all-time postseason RBI list. I believe now that I think about it, it was Correa. I don't remember what place exactly he was, but upon watching the game, the broadcast network put up a little graphic, and it showed the all-time list of uh, men in the postseason who have collected the most runs batted in. Tom, I want you to tell me, in light of Carlos Correa moving up that leaderboard, who is pacing that leaderboard? Who leads baseball all-time in postseason RBI? That's it? Just number one? Number one. Derek Jeter, he has 65. No, you're wrong. (laughs) I thought I knew that off the top of my head. (laughs) Well, the good thing is... God damn it. I'm looking that up now. I'm going to look it up too just to be safe. I'm positive that's what I read, but you can go ahead and look it up. The the answer... Do you want me to tell you the answer since you're looking it up? No, no. I'm... Oh, he has 61. God damn it. Okay, at least at least I have more faith in myself. I'm gonna look it up too. Can you tell me what place Jeter was? I'm or because I need to know. I need to know. I'm that. currently looking it up right now. I believe Jeter's in the top five. Jeter, I know, is in the top five somewhere. Okay, no, my answer is correct. I'm not crazy. Derek Jeter is actually tied for fourth with David Ortiz. So I'll give you that. It's not. He's got four. It's not Ortiz either. Yeah, there oh, are three shoot. men above him, and I'll give you this. All three of these men played in the same era as Jeter, or roughly the same men, but all you gotta do is give me number one. And one more addendum, it was Carlos Correa, he's now sixth, and he has 55. Well, first of all, I think there needs to be an asterisk next to that because he cheated in one of those postseasons. <laughs> That's true, he passed, um, so he passed gonna, pool holes for that one, so. So, if they play in the same, so this can go from the 90s to the 2010s. Yes. I'm trying to think of teams that have been there. It could be another Yankee. It could be. It could be, because I know they've definitely made the postseason a lot. It could also be an Atlanta Brave, because they made the postseason, like, a crap ton. You want a hint? Of of the top three, there is a Yankee, and there is a Brave. I'm not going to tell you what place there is, but you're, you're on the right track. I'll even tell you, the third player is a Red Sox. I just won't tell you if they're one, two, and three. Ah, uh, you suck. Okay. All right, let, for time's sake, I'm just going to rattle these names off um, and hope I'm right. Bernie Williams... For the Yankees, I'm going to say he's number one just because I'm biased. Okay. I know I'm already wrong because the way you said, okay, you didn't put a smile on your face uh, <laughs> tells me otherwise. Um, The Atlanta Brave, I'll just say Chipper Jones. Okay. And then the Red Sox. I'll just say Manny Ramirez. Yolo. I know he wasn't on the Red Sox for like the majority of the 90s, but I'll go with those three names. Okay. So I'll go from the bad. The, there's good news and bad news. I'll go from the bad news up. You're wrong about Chipper Jones. Chipper Chipper's actually number nine with 47. The brave you missed is David Justice. He had 63. Okay, so that means I am on the right track. Yes, you are. And you're even on the writer track, like because that's a phrase, because Manny Ramirez is correct. He had, oh. he had 78. And what's more so, Bernie Williams is correct. And guess how many he had, Tom? 81. He had 80. So you... Well, you, you know what? I'll take I it. I was going to say, don't just take it. You got it right. You said Bernie's first because bias, and you're actually right. Oh, Bernie oh. Williams is the all-time leader in postseason RBI with 80. Let's go. I'm fist pumping. The Jersey Shore fist pump right now. <laughs> Hell yeah. I, I'm going to have to make it harder next oh, week so Bernie. I don't see that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, so Bernie, real quickly, he was my first ever favorite player in MLB history. 
He actually so happened to be the oh. first baseball card I also ever pulled, too. <laughs> so I find that very happy. That's a fun story. I got a pack of baseball cards in a Pathmark, if you remember what that was. Oh, my God. If they had those that's, in Long That's Island. a throwback. We did. I had one 10 minutes from my house. Because they had card vending machines when you can walk out of the store. And yeah. I'd always beg my mom to get me, like, a pack of cards every time I went there. And I went there a lot uh, because I wanted baseball cards. And I just so happened to get it. And the first one I pulled was Bernie Williams. And I still have that card to this day. I know where it is. That is a very nice story. Although I do remember you saying Bernie Williams is your favorite player. I probably should have picked a question not about him. Uh, next week's question will be harder. <laughs> Don't worry. Well, and to be fair, to be fair, I initially guessed Derek Jeter. Uh, so te- te- techni- <laughs> technically how you want to say it, I'm wrong. Then you gave me the help where I'm right. Um, but I'm going to still say I'm right because I want uh, the Brownie boys. Well, I'm going to still say you're right. So it incites me to make a harder question next week. So... Okay, well, you do. You. And there's also one <laughs> thing I want to point out before we close out this segment. Not even just a se- not even just a side thing, just a funny thing I found. Apparently, the all-time leader in postseason triples is a man named Steel Arm Davis. He has seven of them, and he did it in only 100 plate appearances. Derek Jeter's second with five, and he needed 734 to do it. I wanted to say that <laughs> just because of the name Steel Arm Davis. He's one of those uh, dead ball era guys. Actually, actually, I believe he was a Negro Leaguer, but I just love that name so much, I couldn't not pass it up. Wow, that is a fantastic name. We're going to have to do... See, I feel like we're going to have to do an episode devoted to these, like, funny names and stuff like that or maybe we'll make it a segment i actually think we were planning this out at one point when we were doing pre-production before episode one even released (laughs) um so you know what all we'll say for right now is stay tuned for content like that because we will probably do something like that in the future um any rate we've got to move on i'm on the wrong place in the rundown there we go let's move on to the championship series We've got two series to talk about, obviously, because there's only two going on. We've only seen three games. There's going to be another. There's going to be game two tonight of the NLCS between Atlanta and the Dodgers. All right. So, yeah, we've only got one game to decipher with Atlanta and L.A. Let's just do that right now. And, Tony, I will let you start because I have zero notes pulled up for it right now. So I'm going <laughs> to throw you under the I'm going to throw you under the uh, bus and uh, hope you know something about this game more than I do. Well, I I, I do know the Braves won. (laughs) I know it wasn't. Oh, my God. The Rams are winning 38 to three over the Giants. Jesus Christ. I'm not Um, surprised. Uh, What I am surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I've learned not to go on. I know. I know (laughs) that I learned not to be. I learned not to have expectations for my Giants or our Giants. I suppose. I I suppose. Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> all i was gonna say is i knew atlanta won and i knew the score was three to two um but um i didn't get to watch the game because i was working last night um but tony you go i'll give you some more of the nuts and bolts so how they got those runs uh the first run actually scored on a wild pitch by all-star dart all-star dodgers starting pitcher Corey kniebel yes they pulled that again Austin Riley scored on a wild pitch. Your face, you just, Tom just made a look of really after I said Corey Knievel started. <laughs> Eddie Rosario got on with a single. He got moved over to third with a stolen base and uh, a force out at first by Ozzy Albies. And then Knievel throws a wild pitch. Riley scores. Uh, not Riley, sorry. Rosario scores. Chris Taylor had an RBI single in the very next inning to tie things up. Will Smith, uh, Dodgers catcher, hit a home run. Austin Riley responds with a home run. There's no score until the bottom of the ninth, where in what is actually kind of reminiscent of... Tom, I'm going to apologize in advance for opening up this vault of repressed memories. If you remember the 2004 ALCS, 
I believe it was game four, the Dave Roberts game, when against... (laughs) God damn it. When Dave Roberts got on first, stole second, and scored the... I I believe it was the tying run back in 2004 on a little blooper single. This time, here in 2021, Ozzy Albies singled on a shallow little blooper to center field. He stole second uh, while Austin Riley was at bat. And then Riley went on to single uh, single into left, scoring Albies, winning the game. So, couple notes that I had about this game just in general. Both teams pitched really well for the most part. Uh, Corey Kniebel, I really don't think should be a starter for the Dodgers. I really don't know why they're using openers. He pitched well. Max Fried, I believe, went deep into this one. Um, he only allowed the two runs to Will Smith and Chris Taylor. Uh, and then the bullpens outside of, I believe it was Trinan, yeah, Blake Trinan of the Dodgers lost them the game. But outside of that, Will Smith of the Braves did not allow a run. Kenley Jansen, Joe Kelly, Luke Jackson, all of them worked clean one, two, three innings. Uh, and even Tyler Matzik didn't pitch poorly. And Alex Vezia, very deep into the bullpen, the Dodgers went here in game one. They all pitched really well. Uh, it was just a just a grudge match, a matter of who would blink first and... Unfortunately for Dodgers fans everywhere, the Braves took advantage and they won. Yeah, see, I don't know if you were saying the Dave Roberts thing on purpose just because Dave Roberts is the manager of the Dodgers. I didn't catch if you said that was on purpose or not because Discord, of course, lagged out when you were describing it. But then I heard Game 4 and Dave Roberts, and I'm like... I already know where you're going with this. (laughs) So, um, yeah, from the look of it, Austin Riley, he drove in two of the runs for Atlanta. He is definitely looking like one of the difference makers for this team. Had a fantastic season, by the way. I don't think we ever really got to highlight Riley. His season hit 303, 33 home runs, 107 RBIs. The 24-year-old had a breakout year. Good for him. He's hitting 368 in the postseason. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at some of these Atlanta bats, and they're honestly hitting pretty well in the top of the lineup. Austin Riley is hitting 368. Jock Peterson's hitting 400. Ozzy Albies, 286. Uh, Freeman, 235. That's not good. Eddie Rosario's 294. Anyway, that's not the point of what I was going to say. The point of what I was going to say is, okay, I actually forgot where I was going to go with it, but I'm disappointed that we didn't get to see a Will Smith-Will Smith matchup between the pitcher Will Smith and the catcher Will Smith last night because I know Will Smith pitched and Will Smith caught. So I'm hoping maybe the baseball Twitterverse will go crazy if that happens later on in the series. I still haven't thought of what I was going to say yet for this game, Tony, so I'll just let you take over and you can give some more thoughts. (laughs) Well, we already had that Will Smith matchup in last year's postseason, and it was Dodgers' Will Smith uh, who came out on top with a three-run home run that I believe actually gave the Dodgers the lead there. So if you're a Braves fan, you probably don't want that matchup again. But no, what you said about Dave Roberts, the Dave Roberts game while Dave Roberts was behind the bench for the Dodgers, the Dodgers just got outplayed. Uh, I don't think they played poorly, so to speak. Dave Roberts actually didn't make any bullpen blunders. Uh, maybe bringing in Jansen too early and trying in too late. But Blake Trinan didn't have a bad year. I would trust him in the tie game, in a tie game of a ninth inning. Uh, more so than Josh Hader anyway. Trust me, I wish we had more time to clown on the Brewers uh, for that decision. I don't know why you bring Josh Hader in the eighth inning. But no. This series is off to a really great start for Atlanta. They're going to be in Atlanta tonight, like Tom said, for Game 2. If they could steal this one, they're in a great spot going into L.A. Granted, I don't want to give the Braves too much leeway because of how how many times they've disappointed me and all of baseball before when they've had expansive leads in the postseason, but that's just Atlanta sports, I suppose. 
I, for one, would like to see the Braves go on just so we have a new team in the World Series for once. But if the Dodgers outplay them, they'll probably have earned it. Yeah, and I think it's also the first time that the Braves have hosted NLCS in like 20 years, I think it is, or something like that. I saw that last night on um, Twitter. But yeah, 20 years since the Braves, I think, hosted an NLCS. So good for Atlanta for getting able to host that moment- this momentous occasion, of course, when this is the year they are honoring Hank Aaron. So, of course, you just like to see stuff work out like that. All right, yeah, that's only one game, but we've got two to discuss in the ALCS. So let's move on and do that. Of course, it's between our two favorite teams. I know I said Tampa and Boston are our two favorite teams, but now we have two of our even more favorite teams, Boston and Houston. Let's go through these two games real quickly. Game one, it was a Boston loss to the Astros, 5-4. I believe this was the game where Mr. Carlos Correa decided I'm going to pimp my own home run and I'm going to look like a bad motherfucker doing it. Tony, I hope you know the home run I am referring to. Oh, you're going to hate me. I actually don't think I saw this home run. I know he did hit a home run in this game. Oh, Jesus. It was the one that put them ahead 4-3. to three. I don't know the clip you're talking about. I'm going to be honest with you, so why don't you describe it to us while I continue to pull up these stats just about both games. Gotcha. I'll do my best to do it, and then I'll let you do the stats for both games. So I believe, it, again, you're right about the situation. Dude just f***ing swings at it, just either stands at home plate like, or just walks very slowly, like, throws the bat and just looks like a badass doing it like he's embracing the villain world. He didn't do the stupid sh- where he put his hand up to his ear, like, saying, Huh? Where are you now? Like a f- head. He just pimped his own home run shot very well, and, um, I think that's how he did it. Like, I'm- I could be drawing a blank again, too, because, you know what? I've been dull-headed these past couple of weeks on the podcast, so I don't even know what I could be talking about right now. But I think it was something like that. Again, it was the go-ahead home run, and yeah, that's just what- Correa did, and ultimately, again, that's what led Houston to their win. I believe that was an eighth-inning shot by Carlos Correa. Let me confirm that right now. I believe it was the seventh, actually. Yes, it was the seventh. I'm sorry, because they scored another run in that game. Excuse me, and that was Jose Altuve sacrificed to score in Yuli Gurriel. Anyway, Tony, do you have those stats now? Yep, just across the hall. Most every Astros hitter's been showing up all series, and that's been consistent through these first two games. Carlos Correa, mother of God, he has a 1375 OPS in this postseason so far. Jose Altuve actually hitting worse than I thought, but he did hit a crucial home run in this game, obviously, as did Correa. Jose actually drove in. I believe it was, yeah, it was just the two runs. It was the home run he hit, which was a solo shot, and it was a, oh no, pardon me, it was a two-run shot. He drove in three runs, two with the home run, one with the eighth-inning sack fly. Um, You have other bats in the lineup, like uh, Yuli Gurriel's doing really well. Kyle Tucker's been hitting out of his mind most of the postseason so far. And game one, it really showed. For every step the Astros, uh, pardon me, the Red Sox took, the Astros took two more. So, just a battle of wits. The uh, Astros just happened to prevail. Game two, however, was much less a methodical game of chess and more more a berserker bludgeoning its opponent with a, with a club. Because the Red Sox had two grand slams in the first two innings, ladies and, uh, the, the ladies and gentlemen. You know this. Rafi Devers and J.D. Martinez hit them. They're hitting so well this postseason, and they led the Red Sox to this 9-5 victory over Houston. Houston starter Luis Garcia did not last very long. Sad to see. Kid's a rookie. Uh, you just don't like to see him getting pulled in the game in the second for Jake f***ing Odorizzi. That's got to hurt. And he well, had- I think... Well, I think I think he left the game because he left with like right knee discomfort or something. Oh, that's even worse. I actually I actually forgot I actually forgot about that. That's even worse. You really don't want to see that, even if it's for the Astros. Mm-hmm. 
But nevertheless, Boston really came to play in game two. They ended their little stint in Houston with an exclamation point. Now they get to return to the loving confines of Fenway Park. And hey, Tom, you know who loves hitting at Fenway Park? I'm going to highlight one hitter in particular, and then we'll get moving on. You know this hitter. I think his name is Enrique something. Oh, yeah, Kike Martinez. Where in God's name did he come from? Like, let me just read. Yeah, Kike Martinez. What a really good hitter Kike Martinez is. I, I, I did not say Martinez, did I? Yes, you no, did. No, I didn't. Come on. I didn't say Martinez. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> you said Martinez. <laughs> no way I said. I'm going to look really stupid if you said, if you didn't say Hernandez. I swear to God you said Kike Martinez. I, I might have been thinking of JD Martinez because I just said he hit one of the Grand Slams. If I said JD Martinez. But if I said Kike Martinez, I'm going to be embarrassed, but <laughs> Kike Hernandez is what I meant to say if I did say Martinez. Nevertheless, Kike, where did this man come from? In the regular season, his OPS was 786, which is not bad, but not particularly great. Tom, you want to know his OPS is in the postseason so far, granted in a smaller sample size? 2478. He has a 2478 OPS in this postseason. He's hit how many? Holy sh**. He's hit three home runs. He's been absolutely clutch for them when they need it most. He actually drove in the series-clinching RBI to kill off Tampa Bay, and he's not slowed down for a second against Houston. He had a five-hit night last night, last night being Game 2, of course, and I wish I still had the stat popped up. I don't have the time to do so, but MLB Stats posted it. I know he accrued, I believe it was 30 bases, in his first seven postseason games or something like that, or within his first seven. He's one of, like, two men in MLB history to have ever done that. Like, it's it's almost like with the absence of Randy Orozarena in the postseason now, Kike did one of those, like, he sucked the life and the power out of Randy, and now he's got that power, and now he's gonna hit, like, postseason Jesus. Like, if the Red Sox go any further in the postseason, whether or not they win the World Series, Kike is getting a Randy Orozarena type appreciation, because not only is he doing everything he did, he's doing it in fewer games. So that's some production that needs to be respected. Kike Hernandez, not Martinez, Kike Martinez doesn't exist. He's having a fantastic postseason. Well, there might be a Kike Hernandez out there that (laughs) could eventually... uh... You just said Hernandez! Ah! I said Kike Hernandez. Oh, goddammit. We're tired, ladies and gentlemen. Sue us. And we, and we need oh, to get to this last segment, God. so. <laughs> God, let's just do that because I, <laughs> enough said, you said enough about Kike Hernandez. <laughs> I, I mean, I said Kike Hernandez a minute ago. F***ing <laughs> stupid Tommy. You know. Um, yeah, you said enough about him where the respect is there for Kike. He's got the admiration of all of us in the MLB. I'm honestly enjoying watching him, even as a Yankee fan. It hurts me to see him succeed, but you know what? He's playing damn well. I didn't say the same thing about Randy Orozarena last season when they were playing the Yankees, but I did whenever he wasn't playing the Yankees. So at any rate, let's move on before another one of us has a brain fart. Let's do that indeed. So moving on from our championship analysis, preliminary anyway, uh, anyway, we'll talk about the results next week once those series have concluded. And let's jump right into our second trivia question of the afternoon tom i think i've got i think i've got two incorrect answers two weeks in a row i need to bounce back this week what have you got for me i hope you don't bounce back this week so that way i can officially say i have correct i have more correct guesses than you well, not for much longer but at any rate yeah any rate uh you already know what it's going to be but obviously nobody else does so here we go with the red sox hitting two grand slams yesterday they not only became the first team in mlb history to accomplish this feat in the first two innings it's also the fourth time in Major League history, including the regular season, that a team has hit a grand slam in both the first and the second innings. 
The Red Sox have done it twice, also on August 7th of 1984. Tony, I want you to tell me which team did it last and in what year did they do so. And bonus points, you have a smile on your face. Bonus points if you can guess who hit the Grand Slams. Okay, in the first and second inning, not just in the same game. Yes, it has to be in the first and second inning. I... I thought I knew where you were going because I read a stat that said, oh, the last time this happened in the postseason was the 2005 NLDS between the Braves and the Astros. I think Lance Berkman hit one. I forgot who on the Braves hit the other one. Actually, wait, was that one of them? Because I know someone on the Braves hit it in the first inning. It, huh? Um, it has to be between um the same team. It's the same team. Two people on the same oh. team. That's what the number Nuts. is. Okay. Well, in that case, I'm really not going to know. And you said this is between the regular season and the postseason, and there's... Yeah. So... Yeah, it, including the regular season. But remember I said this is the first time it happened in MLB history in the postseason. So this happened in the regular oh. season, where a team hit two Grand Slams in the first and, in the first and second inning of their um, thing. The last team to do it. It was very recent, I will tell you that. Hmm. I know the Yankees hit, I think, three or four Grand Slams in a game one time in, like, 2011. It was when Curtis Granderson was on the team because he hit one of the Grand Slams. I know that for a fact. I remember Michael Kay's call. I watched that game live, and it was awesome. So how, how many, I'm just curious, how many other times has this happened, you said? Three other times? Uh, Let me see. It's the fourth time in Major League history, including the regular season. Um, The Red Sox okay. have done it twice, Um, so they already have one of them. Um, I don't know who the third team was, but I know the other team, obviously, because that's the answer. The last time it happened, and again, it is very, very recent. Okay, so it can't be the Yankees then, because y you would have known that, and they're obviously no. not the most recent one to do it. So, okay, very, very recent. Are we talk? Can I ask, are we talking this year recent, or just like past few years recent? Th this, year. this year recent. Oh my god, I'm going to look like more of an idiot when I get this wrong then. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. Oh, part of the question was what year did they do so? Well, I already gave you that, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm looking for the team mainly that did it. That will be the answer that you have to go on. And again, bonus points if you can guess who hit the Grand Slam. Wait a minute. Uh, I don't think that was a Grand Slam. That's not even this year. Son of a... I was thinking about that game where the Braves beat the Marlins like 29, like 29 to 6. I know there was a game this year. It might have been like against the Orioles. Somebody won like 20-something to like nothing or to 1. I'm literally just thinking of, okay, blowouts, and then let me just think of how they scored. I know this is probably wrong. I know there was a game where the Braves clobbered the Mets, like, 20-2. to two. I Actually, no, I'm going to go a different game. Ye Rays-Yankees, it was when Luis Patino, I think it was his first real start, and he got a quality start against the Yankees, because of course he did. And the Rays shelled Garrett Cole. I'm going to say it was that game, and G-Man Choi hit it because he owns Garrett Cole, and the other one was like... Kevin Kiermaier. I don't know. Well, you are wrong. Yeah. Um, it was a game where somebody romped them. It was the Dodgers who did it this season on May 2nd in their 16-4 romp of the Milwaukee Brewers. Wow. And the two hitters that did it were A.J. Pollock and Matt Beattie. Matt Beattie. Okay, never in a million years would have guessed that. I'm definitely... <laughs> that is partially why I, I asked this question, because I knew you wouldn't get Matt Beattie. Well, I need to get the Dodgers. Okay, you're getting the hardest question on planet Earth next week. I'm, I'm, pulling, I'm pulling no punches from here on out. I want to be nice. Now, now no holds barred. I'm going to ask you 
the most bullshit question about the World Series ever next week. Just you wait. <laughs> I'm so screwed next you, week. You've incurred the I wrath bet. of my obscure baseball knowledge. <laughs> Oh my God. Speaking of teams who've been real, speaking of people who've been really f- screwed, we've got a special segment for you all this week. So we call this, we call this, or rather Tony called it because he came up with the idea and then placed these events in what we call the worst postseason umpiring bracket. Now, again, this is kind of in honor of all the bull calls that have happened this postseason, mainly the Wilmer Flores call. Um, with that Gabe, uh, whatever the f*** his name is, uh, Gabe Morales call. Um, and so we wanted to kind of highlight eight special events that happened in postseason history in which, again, um, there was a blatantly bad call, and we're going to incorporate how blatant the correct call was and how much it cost the team it affected the most. So those are the two instances on which we are judging it on, unless we say so during the debate. Um, so before we get into the eight events, Tony, you did write down some honorable mentions that we should go through. And one of them, um, was that Wilmer Flores call. I think it's a little bit too recent to put it in, even though we did recency bias for the, uh, Conor McGregor pitch. Fuck you. It's our own show. We can do what we want. Um, but, um, yeah, that one will be left out but we are doing it in spirit of it. But Tony, what are the other three that we are leaving out? Yep, so outside of the Flores check swing, we also have the Matt Holiday not touching the plate from the 2007 game 163 uh, between the Padres and the Rockies. I didn't include this one just because it's not technically the playoffs. It's a game 163 to decide who will go to the playoffs. So the other two I wrote down, uh, one was the Steve Bartman incident in the 2003 NLCS. I didn't list this one because... I, I technically think this shouldn't be fan interference, and I feel like a bunch of folks and pundits are in agreement with that, considering left fielder Moises Alou had to reach into the stands to go get the ball. The rule is, if the fan reaches out onto the field to get it, it's fan interference. If the player reaches into the stands, fair game for the fans to do whatever they want. But it's technically not a blown call, because the umpires didn't have anything to do with it. If the umpires did blow it, it's probably the number one seed. But nevertheless, last one I have is the phantom tag from the 1999 ALCS between the Yankees and Red Sox. Uh, If you don't know this play, uh, Chuck Knobloch, the Yankees' second baseman, fields a grounder from one of the Red Sox hitters, tags a runner, or should I say air quotes, tags a runner going from first to second, flips to first for the double play. This was in the eighth inning of a game that the Yankees would go on to win and advance to the World Series off the backs of after they won it. And granted, I believe the Red Sox were only down by one run by then, or it was a tie game. So technically, this this game was still within reach for the Red Sox, and had that call not been blown, they would have had more of a chance. And granted, I was maybe a few months old when this happened, but by eyewitness accounts, it was almost a riot in Fenway Park when that call happened, and obviously there's no instant replay back in two, uh, 1999. You can't overturn that. I didn't list it because it didn't sway the series that much, at least what I think. The Yankees already had a 3 nothing series advantage, they closed out that game for the sweep, and this was not 2004. This was still in the meat of the dynasty. I personally think the Yankees would have closed out that series, but like I said earlier, no use in wondering what ifs. The Red Sox were already in a deep enough hole, and many other series were blown at much closer times with these eight seeds. So honorable mentions aside, Tom, let's get this started. We're going to do this in a typical bracket style. 
Um, I actually don't think we, we discussed this before the show, but I think we're in the same on the same page. One versus eight, two versus seven, three versus six, and four versus five. Just a typical bracket. Nothing, yep. nothing fancy here. Yep. So for this first matchup, Tom, why don't you introduce the one seed? Sure. So this is the probably one of the most notorious calls in a World Series history. This happened in the 1985 World Series Game 6, where Don Denkinger called the runner safe at first. And remember, this was the Cardinals and Royals World Series. Um, and so it was a PFP, what I call pitcher fielding practice, play where the first baseman, it was a slow ground ball. I believe he had to come in and charge it. The pitcher, I forget who it was at the time, had to go over to first. It was a soft toss over to first. And they did technically get the out, if you saw by replay, but Don Denkinger kept motioning safe, safe, safe. And I believe the announcer of that game was like, and he doesn't get him or something like that. I don't know. You can look it up. But he he was called safe at first. Ultimately, that was a big momentum swing for the Cardinals and Royals. But I'll talk about that more in a minute when after Tony introduces our number eight seed. All right, so the combatant for the Don Denkinger safe call is going to be from the 1978 World Series. We're really going back with this one. It was in Game 4, Yankees versus Dodgers, rematch of Yankees versus Dodgers. Dodgers are looking to roar back after their 77 loss to the Yankees. They were up two games to one, and they're about to close out Game 4. They're about to sway the momentum in a 3-1 stranglehold. They're about to win their first World Series in God knows how many years. And I forget who the Yankees hitter was. I think it was Thurman Munson, actually. Rolls a slow ground ball to the Dodgers shortstop. He can't come up with it at first. Actually, no, I don't think it was a slow roller. I think it was a line drive, just barely off the ground. Dodger shortstop can't really come up with it. Steps on second, goes to throw to first. And mind you, the runner at first is Reggie Jackson. Hall of Famer Reggie Jackson caught up between first and second because it would appear at first that Jackson was just... Uh, hung out to dry between first and second. You could say he didn't know maybe if he caught it, if he didn't catch it. He's just kind of awkwardly standing there waiting for uh, waiting to get doubled up. However, things turn a bit sour when the Dodgers shortstop's throw ricochets off of Reggie Jackson and away from the Dodgers' first baseman. I believe it went straight up past him and more towards the dugout. I believe the first baseman was actually Steve Garvey. Don't quote me on that, though. doesn't matter that much because the focal point is Reggie Jackson got in the way of the play, he really shouldn't have been, and it caused a whole big thing. The umpires didn't rule anything about it. They just said it was a wild throw and that Jackson was still in play. Not only that, it's weird. They said Jackson was still in play even though he touched second base and Munson was still safe because no one ever got the ball to first. So Tommy Lasorda, Hall of Fame manager, God rest his soul, one of the best managers uh, to go to for funny managerial ejections, begins screaming in the first base umpire's face, he shouldn't be in the way! He's, he's in the way! He shouldn't be in the way! The umpires are unwavering because it's 1978, and they somehow have bigger sticks up their asses than they do now. And the Yankees go on to win that game, sway the momentum in their favor, and win the next two to secure their second straight World Series. So Tom, what are your thoughts on this matchup? Just, just off the cuff, who do you think has the advantage here? See, it's really difficult, because initially when I was looking back at this Reggie Jackson thing, I thought the series was really much in the Yankees' favor. Turns out the Dodgers would have been up 3-1 to one had they won this game. And I think it was actually Thurman Munson that scored the winning run. I don't think he was the hitter, but um, I think he was that final runner. The Dodgers would have had the momentum, probably would have won the World Series. Ultimately, again, the Yankees won it 4-2. I, I can't really blame Jackson, though, because he didn't know what was happening, and he just so happened to be standing in the path. Technically, he's a dead runner at that point. 
Um, so we could have that argument that we had earlier about what really constitutes a dead runner getting hit by a baseball in the middle of play. But I also think on this play, it was kind of a situation of almost kind of like karma biting the Dodgers in the ass. Because if I look back at it, it looks like the Dodgers shortstop intentionally dropped the ball, that line drive that was hit to him, so that way he could double the Yankees off. Mm. And so he did that, and then it ultimately backfired because Reggie Jackson's like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and um, yeah, and then the Yankees were able to score that run. It probably would have definitely been reversed in today's game with the replay era. But yeah, that was a big momentum swinger. But I feel like this Cardinals one is definitely more notorious in the fact that it was much more of a blown call rather than kind of bad luck. Again, I kind of explained the situation. Um, I'm trying to pull up on Wikipedia um, what happened. I believe the runner at the time of the Royals, again, he was safe at first. And then one thing came to another, and that runner just kept getting around the bases, eventually scored, and that's what won the Royals game six. And then the Royals shelled the Cardinals in game seven of the World Series to ultimately win it. Um, but again, the Cardinals had the advantage. They were up 3-2 in this case. And the umpire, uh, Don Denkinger, if I'm saying his name correctly, yeah, Don Denkinger, he was the crew chief at the time. He sincerely believed he was correct, and he wouldn't overturn the call. Yeah, the Cardinals, I actually watched a documentary about this 80s Cardinals team, and John Tudor, who was the ace of that Cardinals uh, 95 staff, straight up said, like, in Game 6, like, do... When he blew that call, it felt like we lost. Like, it galvanized the Royals to blaze back in that game. Their catcher, Jim Sundberg, I believe, scored the winning run. Um, it definitely helped the Royals a lot more. John Tudor even acknowledged that it galvanized the Royals to put up, I believe the score was 11 to nothing in Game 7. They, they absolutely shelled the Cardinals. It absolutely helped the Royals way more than it did uh, the Yankees in 90, uh, not 90, 78. So, I think we're both in agreement. Deckinger call is going to move on. So for our number two seed, I'll introduce this one, and Tom, you can introduce the number seven seed. This one, Tom and I are going to know really well, but this this is one era of Yankees history. Even we could see eye to eye on. Time and place, 1996 ALCS Game 1. Yankees, or Orioles at Yankees, rather. Derek Jeter comes up in the waning moments of the game. Orioles reliever Armando Benitez is on the plate, uh, is on the plate, is on the mound. Feeds Jeter an outside fastball. Jeter smacks it the other way. It's going, it's going, it's going to hit that short porch. It's going to go over, and a fan reaches over. I believe the fan's name is Jeffrey Meyer or Jeremy Mayer. Yep, yep. Every, Jeffrey Meyer. The Jeffrey Meyer game. Reaches over, gets the ball. Orioles right fielder, uh, Torbata, Cordaba. I don't remember his last name, but he points up immediately, indicating fan interference. It was Telesco. I'm sorry? Oh, no, the umpire. I'm oh, no, sorry. no, no. The, I'm sorry, you were talking I was about talking the about the right fielder. I was talking about the right fielder. Oh, that was ter- that was Tarasco. Tarasco, that's his name. Thank you. He points up, indicating fan interference, and he's looking for the umpire. I believe his name was Richie Garcia. He looks at Richie Garcia, and Garcia basically starts bellowing in his face. No, 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 that's a home run. It went over the fence. It's a home run. Orioles right fielder throws a fit. Jeter's calmly rafting the bases as the Yankees... <laughs> Um, I believe they took the lead on that home run. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tom. I I don't have this. They They did. did. Okay, I thought so. But what ensued to me was, this is the funny part of this play, not just how blatantly obvious it was that the kid reached over to grab the baseball, because if he didn't do that, Orioles right fielder is going to make that catch, or it's at least going to bounce off the wall. Not only does the Orioles... I'm sorry. 
What? I'm sorry, this tied the game. I'm sorry. Oh, it tied, tied the game. It didn't give them the lead. So, yeah, pretty pretty significant for the Yankees in a game one, by the way. Uh, so not only is the Orioles right fielder berating Richie Garcia, the Orioles manager, I believe it was Davey Johnson, he ran out to yell at him. And what's even better, Armando Benitez, the pitcher, runs out to right field to yell at the umpire too. <laughs> that to me makes this play. I love that Armando Benitez runs out to yell at him. We'll deep dive it more when we introduce the next seed, which Tom, why don't you go ahead and do that right now? What is the seventh seed? Sure. So this one is Trey Turner called out for interference in the 2019 World Series of game six. So this is a play where Trey Turner hits a dribbler in front of home plate. He's running the first base as fast as Trey Turner can possibly run, which is pretty much like a roadrunner. He's running. The catcher or the pitcher, I forget who it was, threw the ball and it hit Turner. And I believe it bounced off of him and something like that. And then Washington came around to score, but the umpire said, no, no, no. That was interference because he thought Trey Turner went out of the baseline, which if you look at John Boy's breakdown of it, because he does have a great breakdown of it, which I'm going to quote in a minute because um, <laughs> Trey Turner's a f- savage. Um, <laughs> no, exactly. So where he you're going starts kind of... Dr- he kind of starts going into the grass a little bit, but he corrects himself by the time he's like 30 feet away from first base. He's perfectly in line right down the path, or maybe he tipped Yuli Gurriel's glove. I don't know what the case is. Either the ball hit Turner or he hit his glove, and that's what caused it to go. But he called him out for interference. It was a load of bullshit. Dave Martinez came out to argue. He, <laughs> he even told the um, umpires of this, wait till you watch, wait till you watch. <laughs> Just kind of hounding them about the replay era. Just wait till you watch. But it gets even better than this. Um, this doesn't really affect it anyway. But Trey Turner in the dugout after this all happens. I believe Anthony Rendon later <laughs> hit a home run that inning. And uh, they took the leader or something like that. Um, <laughs> he says this about it. Because Joe Torrey, the head of the umpires, and his name will be mentioned later on when we talk about the next matchup, I believe. Um, he goes on a tirade because Torrey is in attendance. For this game and Turner to Tori says hey he's right there just ask him why is he hiding we can't replay this if it's like a protest at the game and Joe Tori's in charge of all the umpires he's right there and he's sitting with his head down trying not to look up he <laughs> called out Joe Tori about it that was a direct quote from the John Boy video by the way um his captions savage for calling out Joe Tori about that and you could hear the audio too in the uh camera <laughs> that was great now Tony, I think we're going to be both in agreement with this pretty quickly. I don't think this was, I mean, this was a blown call by the umpires, but ultimately Washington later prevailed in that inning and they eventually won the World Series. So it really didn't hinder them so much. Um, by the way, Dave Martinez later ejected between innings still over that call, even though his team already took the lead, um, which I find funny. But um, yeah, I, I, the Jeffrey Meyer one is definitely, I wouldn't say it's as more impactful because it was game one. It does sw- change the momentum, I guess, of the series because historically game one winners end up victorious in the series more often than not but this Turner one again the Nationals they came back pretty quickly I agree with you on that I put this one in here because a recency and b I think in a vacuum like you don't take into account how it affected the series I think this is one of the worst calls on paper just because you look at that John Boy breakdown you look at the live footage and there's no straighter that Trey Turner could run there's nothing he did to potentially get in Gurriel's way. It was just a bad throw. I think from I think it was Justin Verlander who was on the mound who threw the ball. I'm in agreement with you on that, just because yes, the Nationals did prevail. Anthony Rendon did homer that inning, and 
Ironically enough, both of these plays involving managers named Davey, uh, Johnson and Martinez. Uh, loved that Martinez ejection, by the way. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Davey Martinez, who had heart troubles earlier that season, almost like reignited them with the blow-up he had on all of the umpires. Very reminiscent of umpire ejections of old. And I love me a good managerial ejection. Hey, well, maybe we'll make that a tier list one day. But back to the Jeffrey Meyer home run or robbery. It just, it has to be that one. It, how do you not call that fan interference? And I know you said, Tom, it doesn't sway it that much because game one is, it, it's game one, it's not like game seven. But you look at that series as a whole, Baltimore only ended up winning one game in that series. It was game two. They never really did get that momentum going to really take a strong stance in that series against, granted, the beginnings of an empire in the 96 Yankees. But let's just say that home run doesn't happen. The Orioles win. They win games one and two. That's, an, that's a completely different series. We're looking at a completely different momentum swing. Maybe the Orioles are the dynasty we're talking about. But, or at least the, at least the Yankees dynasty is delayed. Let's just say that. I was going to say that. Does the dynasty even happen at that rate? Or does Steinbrenner, who's in charge of the team, just suddenly dismantle the team and ship off some guys? Maybe some of his younger players, such as that core four that the Yankees had. I almost wore that short shirt today for the podcast, by the way. I didn't. But um, does that ultimately happen? You have to question that. So, again, it didn't really outcome affect the outcome of the game. It definitely out- affected the outcome of the series, you can argue, definitely more than I think the Trey Turner one did. I think we can both agree Jeter's will be moving. Yep. So for right. our next matchup, Tom, I actually want you to intro this top seed, the three seed, because we talked about this prior to the show. I will intro the six seed. You can go ahead with number three. We talked about this one prior to the show? Yeah. Oh, yes, we did. <laughs> oh, yes, we did. This is the NL wildcard game of 2012, the first NL wildcard game, mind you, in history and they started off with a bang this is the infield fly game so this is where andrelton simmons hits a pop-up into left field yes left field shallow left field pete cosma the shortstop is charging after it i have my sound on i'm gonna turn that off hopefully it didn't pick up on my uh, recording (laughs) but yeah cosma tried to make the play and then matt holiday comes in charging and then they miscommunicated with each other, and the ball dropped. And that would have been great. That would have given the Braves bases loaded. One out in the bottom of the eighth in a 6-3 ball game that they were trailing, but still a 6-3 ball game at home. One out. You don't know what could happen. There's only one problem with this, though. And Freddie Gonzalez kind of went irate over it. The left field umpire, whose name eludes me because I really don't give a shit about His name, him. Just, just so it lives in infamy, is Sam Holberg. Thank or you, Holbrook, Sam. Holbrook, sorry. Sam, Continue. Sam Holbrook stuck his finger up in the air, and if you don't know what that means, he signaled for an infield fly. And the rule, um, so the infield fly rule states in part that the batter is out when with first and second occupied with less than two outs, the batter hits a fair fly ball, which is not a line drive nor a bunt, and this fly ball can be caught by the infielder with ordinary effort, meaning he shouldn't even have to try about this. This was... Um, and say it so that way, in the olden days, people couldn't, like, intentionally drop the ball. So he called it an infield fly. I don't know how he thought that was an ordinary play for a shortstop, which in shallow left field. Are you f***ing stupid, Sam? Like, come on now, dude. There's more to this story that I find f***ing ironic 
But I'm going to let Tony um, bring up the next seed first because I got to find what I was going to say. All right. So for the number six seed, try saying that five times fast, the six seed, we're going to go back to 1991, the World Series Game 2, Braves versus Twins. The Minnesota Twins took home Game 1 off of a Herculean effort from ace Jack Morris and future series MVP Jack Morris, by the way. Game 2... Very tight contest. One-run uh, one game. Tom Glavin's on the mound for the Braves. Every run counts. Every base runner counts. Well, except when they're pulled off the bag. Then the base runners don't mean a thing, according to the first base umpire of this game. Because what happened, in case you didn't know, Braves hitter Ron Gant was... Uh, he was at the plate, actually. He wasn't at first. Twins pitcher delivers the ball. Ron Gant smacks, uh, smacks, bleh, smacks a single into left. Uh, the return throw in is a little wild. It goes back to the pitcher uh, trying to keep the runner who was already on first at third base. He was able to advance to third. Gant takes a little stride away from first base thinking, oh, it's a wild throw. Maybe I could tag up and go to second so we can cement this lead a little more. Or actually, I think it was a tie game at the time. And nevertheless, the Twins pitcher catches, like he gets the cutoff. Wild throw is no longer wild. And he notices Gant away from first base. So he says, oh, shit, let me just try and get a throw off, get him back to the base, maybe pick him off. Kent Herbeck is the Twins' first baseman, and he proceeds to, upon getting the throw, Gant gets back safely. Gant gets back just fine. He's well ahead of the throw, no question there. Herbeck, however, has an ace up his sleeve, and that ace is called cheating. So he proceeds to <laughs> he proceeds to lift Gant's foot off the bag with, with one arm, and his glove is still tagging him, uh, which would imply he's out. And that's, what, that's exactly what the first base umpire calls. He signals out. You cannot sway that. Herbeck's argument was that his, his momentum was taking him off the bag. But if you watch this video live, there is no way you could call that being like momentum taking him off the bag. Herbeck literally took two steps back with Gant's leg in his hand while basically <laughs> pulling him off the bag. Tags him. Umpire says out, Gant and the Atlanta Braves first base coach are livid, as they should be, and it causes the Braves, excuse me, it costs the Braves a potentially huge inning. So, we have our matchup. I love how, yes? we're, I love how we're talking about the Braves' um, shortcomings in this entire matchup. I just love that, by the, <laughs> the way. The Braves are getting screwed in a lot of these. I just realized what this matchup was. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, speaking of Atlanta screwing up, how would you deep dive? You said you had something else to say about the infield fly game, and then after that, why don't you give us your say of who you think should win? Yes, so in this game, uh, the infield fly game, uh, Atlanta manager Freddie Gonzalez, who I already said went out tired, he announced that the Braves would play the rest of the game under protest. It was denied shortly by, I mentioned his name before, Joe Torrey, saying that it was a judgment call and that cannot be protested under MLB rules. Now, Tony, this is what I was alluding to before the show that I said could almost be its own deep drive into left. What, Joe Torre? So, no, not Joe Torre. This. Prior to the game, MLB's official Twitter bio included the joke, we don't understand the infield fly rule either. <laughs> After the game, it was quickly removed because of the controversial call by Sam Holbrook. Way to be completely tone deaf to the entire situation and piss off an entire fan base, MLB Twitter. Nicely done. That, that, no, that was before the game. Wait, that, that was, that, that was there. That was before I the game. I thought you said it was after. Oh my God, I'm deaf today too. 
That is so ironic, then. Oh, my God. That was prior to the game. Prior to tonight's game, oh, MLB boy. Twitter inadvertently shot themselves in the foot. That's fantastic. So, oh, my so Tom, I just need to point that out. I, thank you for pointing that out. I never knew that. That being said, which of these fantastic ways uh, the Braves got screwed over would you like to advance? This is a very tough one. So this is the wild card game, and the other one was game two of the World Series. Um, granted, that was the wor- greatest World Series of all time, according to many baseball historians and baseball fans. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there had to be controversy. This is the wild card game. But again, the Braves would have had second and th- or bases loaded one out with a six to three ball game. And um, probably I don't know if it was going to be the heart of their lineup up next or who was going to be up next. But that could have ultimately sent St. Louis packing in that inning alone um, if that happened. Now, it's a very blatantly bad call. If we're calling stuff based on blatant calls, I'm going to have to give the infield fly one probably the nod over the Kent Herbeck one because the other, the Kent Herbeck one just kind of leaves me shaking my head like, how do you mess this up? But then again, I could say that about all eight of these calls. So how do you mess this up? He clearly... I'm pretty sure he, like, wrapped his arms around Gant's leg like it was a teddy bear, and then he dragged him (laughs) off the base. So, uh, this is tough. Because of the circumstances, I almost got to give it to Herbeck, because that happened in a World Series, and the other one happened in the wildcard game, and the Braves could have gone far. We don't know what would have happened to the Braves had they advanced. But I don't think the—I know that was the year the Giants won the World Series. So I know the Cardinal—they may have gone to the CS. I don't really remember. Actually, I think they did go to the CS. I'm going to give it to Herbeck just because of the circumstances regarding the momentous occasion. But then again, that was the first wildcard game ever. And that's already—you're already shooting yourself in the foot, MLB. But yeah, I'm going to give it to Herbeck. That's where my my thought process is going. I'm not going to lie. I'm leading Herbeck a bit too. But the fact still remains, with this wildcard game— the Braves would have gone on to play the Nationals, which it's the Nationals in the mid-2010s. They would have won. Granted, that means they would have a date with the Giants, who, like you said, won the World Series that year. Because the stakes are higher, obviously the World Series, the greatest World Series of all time, like you said, Tom, this one is certainly up there with one of the one of the all-time greats. Seven games, close games, pitching duels, blowouts. When you look at this from complete black and white, I think the infield fly call is eons worse. That perplexes me, but what perplexes me even more is how the umpire in 91 didn't have the wherewithal to think, huh, this guy who's struggling to keep his balance after, like, Gant didn't scuttle back to the bag tripping over himself, he just shuffled back and then automatically, oh, for some reason, what, he's losing his balance all of a sudden, this is weird, can't at all be the first baseman's fault who looks like he's pushing him. Yeah, no, I think this one's close, this one's the closest one I think we have, but I'm gonna give the nod to Herbeck too. Yes. Excellent. And real quickly, last note on this, uh, shout out to the Twins in 2011. They celebrated the 20th anniversary of the controversial play by commissioning a bobblehead doll of Herbeck and Gant and Tangled that proved very popular with Twins fans, apparently, according to Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much. Okay, Minnesota, way to be petty. You get my credit. Um, But at any rate, let's move on, because we've got one more matchup, and this one is interesting. We're going to be bashing the White Sox again. But <laughs> and the other one, and the other one, we're bashing the Braves. Guess again. what? Yeah, we're back in the Braves territory, and I already know which one I'm going to say is more egregious, egregious, <laughs> because this one happened not only once, but at 
I'm going to say 15 times because of how many strikeouts <laughs> a certain gentleman had on the mound that day, aided by a certain umpire. But before we get into that umpire, Tony, do you want to talk about um, AJ Pierzynski? Yes, I will. And it's good to know this one's going to go quickly because you and I are on the same page. So AJ Pierzynski, uh, everybody's favorite player who nobody hates at all, catcher for the Chicago White Sox in their, in their 2005 World Series run. This is from the 2005 ALCS, Game 2, White Sox versus Angels. I believe the Angels pitcher's name was Morales. Uh, strikes out Pierzynski to end the inning. Pierzynski swings at it. It's a low, it's a low breaking ball. Uh, the Angels catcher gloves it. Pierzynski starts to walk off. The umpire motions strike three. Everyone's cool. But then, oh no, what's this? Pierzynski throws his bat and runs down to first, as if it, as if it's a dropped third strike. All the mind you, all the Angels are coming off the field. The umpire himself, the home plate umpire. I wish I had his name so I can out him. Called strike three. And then once Pierzynski ran down to first, stood there like a scared little puppy dog, like, uh, uh, what do I do now? Now what? Pierzynski goes down to first as if it's a drop first strike, uh, drop first strike, drop third strike. Mike Sosha, the Angels manager at the time, comes out to argue to pretty much no avail because this umpire has the backbone of a chocolate eclair. So obviously this doesn't go Mike Sosha's way. It's a judgment call, which the umpire's judgment as poor and as Unbacked as it was, Pierzynski remained at first, the White Sox took the lead, and they evened the series at one, one game apiece. The White Sox never again lost a game in that postseason. Very critical call for the Angels. I like to think it cost them all the momentum they had in that series, because they did swipe game one. That's a really bad call, but Tom, why, do you, why don't you talk about our fifth seed? So, I will direct you all to a video on YouTube from Pop Films that is titled Levon Hernandez's quote-unquote strike zone 1997 NLCS game five Eric Gregg oh there goes my volume again hopefully that didn't get picked up Eric Gregg is the home plate umpire and he has got to make Angel Hernandez look like Jesus Christ himself with how terrible these calls were granted Eric Gregg was not known for a wide strike zone before this but this dude was calling strikes probably like five feet off the plate and the other, like halfway in the other batter's box for Levon Hernandez. And he's en route to 15 Atlanta Braves strikeouts. Some of them were in the strike zone, but some of them, holy mother of God, were they so bad. If you look at the last one, hang on, I got to pull it up. The last <laughs> one, that was probably the worst. It was a breaking ball. That's definitely the furthest out of the plate. <laughs> and Eric Gray called this a strike three. So this is game five again of the NLCS of um, 1997. And I believe that Atlanta was up in the series at the time. No, they were not. It was a 2-2 series at that rate. Atlanta probably would have had a much better time winning that ball game had Eric Gregg not done bullshit on them. So... The, excuse me, the Florida Marlins, if I called them the Miami Marlins, whatever, they were the Florida Marlins at that time with the classic teal logo and shirts. Um, they won that game 2-1. to one. Hmm, I wonder why Levon Hernandez goes down in history as an NLCS MVP. I wonder why. It's because he got bull thrown on him. The stats don't matter in this case. The numbers don't lie. But, oh boy, golly, does the video tell a different story. Anyway, Florida went on to win the next game in Game 6. This just adds to the long lineage of the Braves getting screwed by the umpires in the postseason. And how many times have they appeared on our bracket now? I think almost um, half. Let's see. They've appeared 1, 2, 
three. Okay, three times. So that that's still pretty bad, but that's three out of eight. So yeah, Eric Gregg, just his entire strike zone in 1997. It's not one call, but they were so collectively bad that it is worth talking about. Anyway, I think we already know we're going to say Eric Gregg is going to move on. I think that's what that's where we're going on. Um, but just so I can have some thoughts on the White Sox one. AJ Pruszynski later admitted on the White Sox broadcast that he wasn't even sure if the ball hit the dirt or the glove hit the dirt. He also said that the home plate umpire basically panicked, which the umpire did. He called out. He motioned out. That's why the Angels walked off the field. Um, I would also like to point out um, in a comment um, on that YouTube video um, from Garrett Tylerson. He is an Angel is an Angels fan. He often heard that Angels fans, they said they cost us a series, but he thinks it's an excuse because they lost the series four games to one. They got wiped out in games three through five. The offense didn't show up like the Milwaukee Brewers offense didn't show up all postseason long this year. So that's kind of what happened with the Angels there. So it did swing the momentum, but ultimately the White Sox demolished the Angels. So, I mean, that that's what it is. I think it definitely affected the Braves more often than it is what it is, and yeah, Game 6 of the CS with the Marlins going on to not just win Game 7, but the whole World Series. I, Folks, seriously, if you have not seen Eric Gregg's strike zone, it is comically large. And we, we might honestly link it, even though, no matter how far it goes in this bracket, we'll see. I genuinely want y'all to see this, because that last strike call that Tom was referring to, straight up in the other batter's box, called it for strike three, and Levon celebrated like he just painted the corner with 100 on the black. So, Eric Gregg is moving on. Not a fan of AJ Pruszynski at all. Uh, the drop third strike was total horse crap. But so we have our final four. We have Don Dinkinger, still is the number one seed. We have the Jeffrey Meyer game, the number two seed. The Eric Gregg strike zone as the five seed, now the three seed, and the Kent Herbeck call was the six seed, is now the four seed. So Tom, our first matchup in the semifinals is going to be Dinkinger versus Herbeck. We don't have to explain them again since we already did. Who do you think wins? So if we're doing it based on that then, then we've got Deckinger against Herbeck, and they both happened in the World Series. I'm still going to give Deckinger the pass. He, or Denkinger, whatever the hell his name is. I don't give a f- He sucked as an umpire. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him the advantage here because, uh, I mean, I say giving him the advantage. That's not really much of an advantage. Um, but I'm going to move him on because it was more egregious and it was more of an impactful game. The Braves still had plenty of opportunity to win that World Series because that was only game two. Again, it would have swayed it, but they had much more time to come back from that than the Cardinals ultimately did. I honestly agree. And you could see, like, just in the Cardinals' demeanor, like you said, when Whitey Herzog got ejected, he he was furious at Dankinger in Game 7. Meanwhile, the Braves, if anything, they rolled with the adversity. They pushed it to a Game 7. They rode the red-hot arms of John Smoltz and Tom Glavin. And John Smoltz pitched the whole damn, uh, the whole damn Game 7 with Jack Morris. Trust me, I could talk for an hour about that Game 7 because I love that Game 7. Nevertheless, the Atlanta Braves seemed less affected by that call, as horrible as it was. As horrible as it was. In terms of what's plainly in front of you, like we have two very bad first base calls... The Don Dankinger one honestly might not be the worst one on paper. It, it's Trust me, it's bad. Trust me, it's bad. If it isn't bad, it's not the one seed. But what it all comes back to is it galvanized the Royals so much and stymied the Cardinals to such an extent. I'd be remiss if Dankinger didn't get past this round. The Herbeck call was terrible, but this one I think has to move on to the finals. So we have next, one of these two is going to go to the finals to face Dankinger. The Jeffrey Meyer game or the Eric Gregg 
strike zone. This one to me, I think, is a lot closer. But Tom, I'll let you go first. Oh, of course you did. Um, <laughs> of course you'll let me go first. Of course. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking back and forth. Which one? As they're both egregious. Greg had more egregious calls than that Jeffrey Meyer call. I think that was kind of clearly fan interference because he Jeffrey Meyer stuck his entire glove out of the way of Tarasco in right field. Um, and I just love seeing Armando Benitez charge out to right field and argue with the <laughs> he towers over that umpire. I just love picturing that in my head. Future Yankee, by the way, Armando Benitez. Also, future Met, who I think blew it with the Mets. Of course, he did. Uh, Armando Benitez. Benitez. Um, because they're both so egregious. I'm going to have to go with the one that ultimately swayed the series more, and that's the Eric Gregg strike zone. I honestly think that. That was a game one. Again, if you're looking at things from a game-by-game -game perspective, that's game one. Again, had the Orioles won that game, maybe it shape, reshapes the Yankees' dynasty run. Maybe it doesn't because they had so many loaded players. Maybe the Yankees would have come back. But the again, Orioles, they could have won the series. They would have had a better shot if they had won game one, obviously. But... They had more the they had more chances to come back. I gotta give it to the Eric Greg strike zone. I'm gonna give it to the Greg strike zone, but for a different reason. If only because this is something that perpetuated throughout the entire game, which that's the one thing about this entry that nothing else here has. Every every other kind of lingering effect we can talk about with these calls, it's passive. Like when it's when Danka just called stymie the Cardinals, and when the infield fly rule kind of sapped any and all momentum and morale out of the Braves. This, Eric Gregg just kept, like, just imagine Gregg with a baseball bat or a club just smacking the Braves over and over and over again throughout the game. And this wasn't like a two-way street. This wasn't like a one, like, a completely unbiased umpire who had terrible calls from both sides. Or maybe he did with the Braves pitcher, but none nearly as egregious as when Levon Hernandez was on the mound. So... Yes, it was a game one for the Jeffrey Meyer call. This one, I think, was closer than I thought it would be because, oh, Tom, while you were talking, I was just literally deliberating in my head like, hmm, which one would I feel worse leaving behind? And I can't let Eric Gregg's atrocious strike zone just be forgotten because I, I feel like more people ought to know about it with how badly, how consistently bad he was. He didn't even get better throughout the game. This man got worse. So oh. that settles that. Our final is going to be Don Dankinger versus eric greg so tom i let you go first for all these i'll be i'll be gentlemanly this time i'll let i'll let myself go first for this one i'll uh, <laughs> that's gonna be gentlemanly yeah <laughs> i'll throw i mean i'm i'm I, i'm happy that you're actually going first because i'm still debating in my head which one i want uh, advancing exactly i'll be the one to chart the uncharted waters this time around so when you look at this these are probably two of our closest I think in terms of how much they hurt the other team. Like, they were both... They both occurred in the penultimate game of their respective series. Uh, the only difference was it was the World Series versus the Championship Series. We also have to take into account how little of a chance the Braves had at overturning that, because the Cardinals, in all actuality... Like, just take Game 7 out of the equation. Take the fact that they say it cost them the World Series out of their mind. If the Cardinals pitcher at the time just clutched up, put it out of his mind, and just executed his pitches properly, then we're not even talking about this. It's a footnote. It's like, a, oh, could you imagine if this cost the Cardinals the World Series? Because remember, 
I don't think we emphasize this enough. If that pitcher made three outs, the Cardinals had a World Series. This wasn't like, oh, it was a tie series or it was a tie game. The Cardinals were one run up in a game six where they were up three games to two. If that Cardinals pitcher just did his job, we'd be talking about the World Series champion Cardinals instead of, oh, the first championship in Kansas City Royals history brought about by a umpire. In that respect, I think the Braves were galvanized more than the Cardinals were. Like, like you have to blame the Cardinals more than you could bl blame the Braves. There's really nothing you could do if you're the Braves in that game other than just pray that your arms grow two inches longer and you can hit it in the other zone. Or in the other box, rather. Honestly, before this, I was thinking open and shut Denkinger just because, just because of how much it hurt the Cardinals. But in terms of how little the Braves could do to combat it and to overcome that adversity... I don't know, dude. Greg has a better chance than I thought he did. See, I was going to be playing devil's advocate. Like, in my mind, I thought the exact same thing. I thought Denkinger's was going to win outright because of how momentous it is and how much everybody remembers it. But then again, there's also another reason why Eric Gregg wasn't asked to do a postseason game in the remainder of his entire tenure as an MLB umpire. Um, <laughs> Forget like about af that. After, the, um, after 1997. Um, I think he had three more years as an umpire, and he never was asked to do the postseason again. Respectfully, I don't want to give it to the Braves almost because it's a re repetition of calls, and that's not fair going against the Cardinals' call. But then again, at the same time, we could also say in the Cardinals' case, they blew it on their own, but we can also say the Braves still could have came back and won the next two games, although that's harder to do than win one game. I shouldn't even really be putting that much thought into this because this is just a podcast segment. We're not, like, determining who's going to be the next president or something like that. <laughs> um, what are you talking about? This is serious. The viewers want to know. I've made a decision. All right. I'm going to go. I'm going to say Eric Gregg. Wow. I'm going to give him the win. All right, because I'm not going to lie. I was going to say take a chair. So, All right, then let's flip a coin. <laughs> honestly, yeah. I, you know what? I might actually have it. Hold on. I'm at a desk now. This is the first episode. I'm at a desk. I might actually have a coin on me. We might not need to ask Siri. Because, let's be honest, folks, no matter who wins this, they're both losers here. Don Denkinger and Eric Gregg, you should both be extraordinarily ashamed of yourselves. You both cost teams momentous, uh, momentous, Jesus Christ, I can't talk, momentous moments in their franchise's history. I wanted to give, the, just my explanation, I wanted to give it to Denkinger simply because it's the World Series versus the CS. Like, I, I understand why you say Eric Gregg, and that's why I'm down to literally flipping a coin. I can't find a coin. I don't know here. Let's, well, you know what? Let's flip this. Hold up. Uh, oh, no, that, that looks expensive. Let's not oh, flip boy. that. <laughs> I mean, we, I could just chuck these um, great headphones that I got at a um, <laughs> internship that don't work very well and they hurt my head. I could just throw them at the ground as hard as possible, and if they break, then it um, goes Eric Gregg's favor. <laughs> um, we could do that, but I don't feel like these would break so easily. I mean, they're pretty cheap. But, here, you um, know what? I am... I have this tiny, you know, I'm, I'm at my mom's old desk. She used to work for Tupperware, so I have this old Tupperware pencil sharpener. I'm going to flip this, and if it lands on, mm -hmm. if it lands right side up, we'll do Deckinger. If it lands upside down, Eric Gregg. It's not really weighted in one way or another. I'll flip it like you would a coin, and just whichever way it lands, it lands. All right, you ready? Ready. All right, it flipped a bunch of times. I haven't looked yet. And is that upside down? It is upside down. So the winner of the horrible umpire calls bracket by total skill and analysis and not just f 
it, let's flip a coin, is the Eric Gregg strike zone from the 1997 National League Championship Series. Congratulations, Eric Gregg. You suck. But if you're Don Dankinger or Richie Garcia or any of these other umpires, don't take too much solace. You still suck too. But we had to pick a winner, and that winner in this case was Eric Gregg. Way to suck, Eric. Way to suck. Yeah, so that was our special segment of the show. We decided to do a bracket. So you know what? Let us know your thoughts on social media when we inevitably figure out a way to make a graphic for these calls, or maybe we just make a post and something like that. I don't know. I don't know. We'll figure that out during the week. Um, <laughs> with that all being said, we've got a closer this week. And normally how we've done the closures in the past is we each kind of point out a discrepancy, we'll say, in the MLB or something that we would like to talk about on each of our own um, accords. But this week we are going to be jo- doing a joint together closer, not in like discrepancy to something or somebody, but rather to honor somebody who had just recently passed away this past week. Tony, take it away. So, like Tom said, this is going to be more of a serious closer. Uh, No Castellanos jokes this week, folks. We're sorry. Maybe next week. But in all seriousness, if you're not familiar, longtime Oakland A's uh, player and figure throughout the organization, Ray Fossey, passed away this past week after a lengthy battle with cancer. He was 74. And you see something like this, Tom. It really brings the game itself to a halt. It really breaks down the barrier so to speak of division rivals and longtime hatred of teams and you really come together to honor somebody who meant a lot to a team because frankly just us two growing up on the east coast i can't speak for you uh, personally but me i didn't know ray fossey growing up i didn't he was just to explain a little who he was uh he was a former all-star catcher for the indians and the a's uh he actually played in the all-star game with cleveland uh, when Pete Rose was, you know, Johnny Hustle, he ran into him at the All-Star game, and it led to some long-term injuries down the road, unfortunately. But don't feel so sorry for him yet, because he actually won two World Series with the Oakland A's uh, while sharing the backstop with Gene Tennis. So great job by Ray Fossey there. And even after his playing career, this is where most folks today are really going to know him. He is the longtime color commentator for the Oakland A's alongside Glenn Kuyper. So... You're going to get a lot of different fans and a lot of different stories about Ray Fossey. The older crowd is going to remember how he led them and the swinging A's to those championships. He may not have been the game changer that, say, Reggie Jackson or Vita Blue was, but catcher's a very demanding position, and no one could tell you that more than Ray Fossey. So, fantastic player, and even more so than that, someone who broadcasted with the A's since 1986. That is an incredible career. He certainly left an impression on generations upon generations of A's fans. And it's truly heartbreaking to see him go. And you could really tell how much of a pillar he was in his community with players who don't even play in Oakland anymore. Liam Hendricks, Sean Doolittle, Josh Reddick. Obviously, the team itself put out a statement tweeting out to honor the legacy of Ray Fossey. Fans obviously tweeting out their support in droves. Just a fantastic pillar of the community, Tom, and a great baseball man we lost this week. Truly sad. Yeah, and on August 5th of this year, he revealed that he had cancer and he had been fighting it for 16 years and he needed to step away from the job as an announcer to focus on his treatment. And then again, unfortunately, he died October 13th of this year at the age of 74. 
as Tony mentioned, he was a longtime color guy for the Oakland A's on NBC Sports uh, California and then on the radio broadcast sometimes. To In 2004, um, last Saturday night, I'll say about Ray Fossey. He was nominated for the um, Ford C. Frick Award, which is pretty much the highest honor that you can have as an MLB broadcaster um, by the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's kind of a li- I, I almost want to say a lifetime achievement award for announcers, and there's a lot of great people who've won the Ford C. Uh, Frick Award in the past. Um, Al Michaels won it. Um, Bob Costas, I believe, has one. Won it. Bob Costas, he was just, I was about to I'd, say his I'd name. I'd be astonished if Vince um, Scully doesn't have one. Like You think of an all-time great MLB announcer, J- John Buck, too, I believe, has one. They've won a Ford C. Frick Award, and the fact that Ray Fossey's been nominated for one truly a testament to how great he was as a broadcaster even if we didn't grow up watching him obviously that doesn't change anything the man's a legend and the fact that he's gone from us especially in such a brutal way that long of a battle with cancer is just unimaginable my heart goes out to the Fossey family and the entire Oakland Ace community who is surely mourning his loss exactly and we all share in the loss of Ray Fossey we just respect the family's wishes at the time of whatever it might be just Think, if you're an Oakland A's fan, just reminisce on the legacy that Ray Fossey left in your heart, especially if you grew up rooting for the A's and you were able to catch his games, unlike us. But if you were able to, just think back on those good times in his passing and remember him by that. And not only that, but of course, what a great man he turned out to be as well. All right. So with that more heart-to-heart close around in the open, Tom, I believe... That will close the book here on episode seven on the Diamond Duo podcast. Have you got anything else you want to say before we close out here? Uh, I am, I am all content. I am, I'm good. Just rest in peace, Ray Fossey. All right, all right. So, thank you oh so much for listening to episode seven of the Diamond Duo podcast. Please tune in next week for episode eight. We're going to get to the World Series soon, ladies and gentlemen. And trust me. With any potential matchup, Tom and I are going to have a lot to say about it. So please keep tuning in. Please keep listening. We truly and dearly appreciate it. Go follow us on social media if you haven't already. At Twitter, uh, at Twitter, on Twitter, at Diamond Duo Pod. And on Instagram, the Diamond Duo Podcast. You can listen to us on Spotify or most everywhere you find your podcast. Thank you again so much for listening and enjoy some October baseball, ladies and gentlemen.